Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we will finish the title story from Hearts in Atlantis, parts 23 through 44. Let's start the show. Pete loses his virginity to Carol Gerber, and then she leaves college. Over Thanksgiving break, Pete decides to get on track with his schoolwork. But once he gets back to school, it's back to hearts for him. Anti-war, anti-LBJ graffiti appears on the side of a dorm, and the obvious suspect is Stokely Jones. But despite most of the dorm laughing at his misfortune when Stokely slips and falls into a puddle of water, they have a Spartacus moment and stick up for him. Skip and Pete use the opportunity to quit hearts and stay in school. The story ends with an older Pete visiting Skip in the hospital and reminiscing. When you say it like that, it seems a little dry, Jay. But it was an interesting story, and I, I enjoyed it, and I was turning pages throughout. But ultimately, this isn't like Low Men in Yellow Coats, where there was a build-up to a very tense and dramatic moment when the, the Low Men confront and take Ted away. Mm-hmm. Another dramatic moment when the bullies are picking on Carol and, and Bobby needs to save her. Uh, here we just sort of get an everyday regular story that a man is reminiscing on really small moments in his life, uh, losing his virginity, um, playing cards with his buddies at school, uh, sticking up for somebody, and it becomes a full story. And he kind of yada yadas over some of the more important things later in his life when he, like, when he took his his protesting even further, when he got arrested and beaten up and things like that. He just glosses over that part because it's not central to this story. But uh, to your point, unlike Lomet and Yellow Coats that built up to this great crescendo, this is more like the main character walking to the edge of the cliff, kind of hanging out there for a minute, and then just deciding to walk away from the edge of the cliff. So like, yeah, the cliff's there, but he was able to just move away from it. And he did. And uh, not, not quite the same stakes. No. And and you, you, to your point, I mean, he walks away from the cliff and then he basically walks over to a riot over there that was on the other side of the plateau Uh that he was, that he was standing on and, you know, gets beaten by the cops and gets thrown in jail. And, um, his best friend who he played cards with in college becomes a famous artist and, you know, sort of world renowned and then has a heart attack. But all that is secondary and off page. And the key moment with him reuniting with Skip is just them at the end saying, you know, much like the ending of Low Men in Yellow Coats, where Bobby and his mother sort of say, hey, we tried, we tried. It's just the two of them saying the same sort of thing, like we did the best we could. Uh, And it's this just, you know, male bonding piece at the end. But again, not these big dramatic moments that you might think of normally. And again, King does that stuff well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one of his, one of the best loved movies of Stephen King's, ad, any of his adaptations is Stand By Me. And, you know, there's not much in that movie that is dramatic, right? There's, there's the train scene when they're running across the trestles. But what, when you think of that movie and remember it, it's just sort of the boys hanging out and being together. Um, and I guess getting leeches on their body, but maybe yeah, that that is that, dramatic. That does have 
that does have a lot in common with this in, in terms of the central character of the story is also the author writing about the story as a reminiscence. Mm. And Stand By Me is constructed the same way. So we start with the adult author in his study working, have the flashback of the movie, and end back with the adult author again, the great Richard Dreyfus. Yes. Um, but here, we know that Pete Riley isn't going to go to Vietnam and die because he is alive 33 years later writing this story, right? We at least know that much that's built into the structure. Um, so there's no suspense there. But we don't know if he's going to fail out of school. We don't know what's going to happen to all of his friends. We don't know that he's not going to end up in Vietnam, right? Right. Um, and, we, and we definitely didn't know that he was going to throw himself fully into protesting the Vietnam War and get into all sorts of crazy things from getting beaten up by the cops, etc. that happen after the story concludes, largely. Yeah. And, I mean, there's hints of that in the first section from last episode where I think he comes out and says early on, like, I don't know if the story's about me, if the story's about Carol, or if the story's about Stokely, but I'm telling the right. story. So even with that lens of perspective from the future, he doesn't really... He knows he has to tell this story, but he's not exactly sure why. Yep. And so that sort of leads to our first topic, which I'm going to let you run with, Jay, because you really nailed something here that I thought was was fairly spot on. I was kind of thinking of it as Goldilocks and the political activists. <laughs> and if you look at three of the major characters in the story and their level of activism, you could say that like Nate Hoppenstand took things very seriously. But because of his reluctance to fully engage, his activism is kind of too soft. And then there's Stokely Jones and later Carol, who was like a little too hard. Stokely took things too far to the point where it put himself in danger of getting expelled from school or getting arrested or both. Um, and then there's Pete. Pete's somewhere in between. So I guess he's kind of the just right. He's the Goldilocks zone of political activism. <laughs> he does take things further than he did um, during the, the body of the story. So we know that he does actively participate in these protests, but it seems like he definitely goes a lot farther than Nate ever did, but he doesn't go as far as Stokely did or as Carol did. Carol blows he herself know, up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and apparently killed people. Yes. Uh, at, at any rate, she's responsible for their deaths. Yeah. So that's kind of taking things too far, right? Yeah. It's not kind of, that's definitely taking things too far. <laughs> when you're trying to make some sort of political statement, it shouldn't involve murder. Um, right. Anyway, it's also easy for Pete, being the author of his own story here, to always put himself in the best light. And by putting himself between those two extremes of Nate and Stokely or even Carol, um, he comes across as being the most effective yet committed activist of the group. Yeah, I mean, oh, I totally agree because he and Skip, they don't really, they, I mean, they don't make fun of Nate. They respect him too much. But as they're reminiscing about him, they're like, oh, yeah, it's him and his kids and his pretty wife. And they send the same Christmas card every year. And so they really just sort of think he's sort of a square, right? Like mm -hmm. he went to school did his work, became a dentist, and he's doing that American thing of being a family man and a business person. And Carol, you know, as you said, she's probably murdered somebody and they don't respect that. And then Stokely, 
who they had a change of heart from at during their time at school. Now they see him as a big sellout. Like, yeah, he was totally committed. He was totally into it. But now he's a talking head on TV whenever the OJ trial comes on. Or, you mm-hmm. know, they just need somebody to talk and he just talks about whatever. And he's getting paid whatever he gets paid is to do these hits on TV. My name's Stokely. You know who I am, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, Pete and Skip are able to look with some dismay at all of those people because of, of what they did. And Pete is able to look at himself and said, you know, I think I did what was right for who I was. And he respects Skip for doing the same thing. He became an artist and his art was profound and potentially had an impact on people. And that's what he's hoping for. Absolutely. So King makes a pretty big deal of using the prisoner as a metaphor in this book. Mm -hmm. And he admits, I don't know if it's here, if it's in the author's note at the end, that it's a little spoilers yeah i know i we've talked about this before how much a, a lot of times the, the the king i like reading the most is the king writing about his own writing and so i read the author's note and he says that it's a little anachronistic to put the prisoner in here the time frame wise wouldn't really work out but it was such a good cool thing that he wanted to do that he kept it in there but throughout this pete and carol have a shared love of the prisoner And they talk about information and the sharing of information. And that seems to me to be some sort of metaphor. And I had a hard time at first sort of trying to understand what King was getting at, because information seems to mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. So there's actual information that they want to share, like what's happening, what's going on. It's not gossip Mm -hmm. per se, but it's just sort of the everyday what's what's happening in the world and at, at the school and at the dorms. But then... There's this interesting twist when Pete and Carol make love that they call that sharing information. Like that's almost how she seduces them, which, you know what? That would totally work on me too. If people started, to, if, a, if, <laughs> if, if a good looking woman started talking about the prisoner to me, like I think I'd fall for her immediately. So I could totally <laughs> understand that. Um, and then later on, he brings up the prisoner again and the sharing of information when Skip and he decide we need to talk to the professors and get our act in order. And he says, you know, we are trying to share information with the professors, although we didn't share very much good information with them because they already knew our situation, what was happening. And Pete and Carol's last connection is a letter that she writes where she talks about the prisoner and and sharing information. And so it it sort of threaded throughout this story. And um, it seemed interesting. I didn't know what you made of it, Jay. Put you on the spot. (laughs) Well, like, Starting with the the last thing you talked about was in Carol's letter, she includes a copy of Lord of the Flies, which of course is a connection back to Low Men in Yellow Coats. It's a yes. really important book to Bobby. And that's why she knows about it. And that's why she shares it with Pete. But Pete immediately sees in Lord of the Flies, the story and the characterization of the boys in the story. Um, he sees a lot of himself in that. And he sees a lot of the touch of madness that he and his dorm mates all experienced over the game of hearts. And this madness came to a crescendo when Stokely Jones slipped and fell. They reached that Lord of the Flies moment where they were sharpening their stick at both ends when they couldn't stop laughing at Stokely's misfortune, right? And that's the kind of information that Pete may never have been exposed to and maybe never would have had uh, that perspective if it hadn't been for some of the information that Carol shared with him through the book. And in fact, 
in the moment when he's reflecting on when they were laughing and picking up Stokely from the water, he said there was something about us. We it was there's something I couldn't put my finger on, and it wasn't until I saw Lord of the Flies that I understood what was happening. And I understood what we were in that moment. And that understanding helped him to see what was going on after the fact, but also realize just how terrible yeah. they, they were acting, just how awful they were as human beings in that moment. And the, the Lord of the Flies from Carol gives him that lens to understand it, at least, so that he can maybe not be that way again in the future or something. Just grow from that right. without that tool, without that lens. He may never have had the ability to, to fully process it. The other piece of The Prisoner is that the premise of the story is that Patrick McGowan's character, number six, there was something in his past that the village wants, that number two wants, and it's information, mm -hmm. right? They'll get it by hook or by crook. And mm -hmm. it's looking back in that past, and sometimes it's unclear if number six even remembers that information or if it's been taken away from him or if he even has it or if it is even useful. And it becomes this whole psychedelic mind fuck, if you will, between what, what's real, what's not real, what information exists, and what use of it is to anyone. Basically a whole metaphor for the Cold War. Mm -hmm. with, with Pete and Carol, what's interesting is when Pete and Carol share information, he often shines upon something in her past, and he does it not necessarily knowingly, but it brings out strong emotions in her. Right. We saw in the last section about how um, they're looking at a picture and like he says something and it automatically brings up her boyfriend, Sully John, as well as the love of her life, Bobby, the most important person in her life, at least. And, you know, they're making out in the car. He says she looks like Bridget Bardot. Uh -huh. And in that little piece, it like triggers all these memories, right? It's like the one thing that he could have said that is both a huge compliment, but it also puts Carol immediately back into the mind of, oh, yeah. My boyfriend and my best friend, you know, when we were younger, they had a thing for Bridget Bardot because there was always a picture of her in a towel on the marquee at the at the local theater. Um, and now I'm thinking about that, which is not necessarily the move you want to make. Yeah, it's it's like Pete manages to say the exact perfect thing and the worst thing at the same time. Yeah. And it, it ultimately it tends to work for him. But, oh, but yeah, yeah, like like if you're if you're trying to to get with the your girlfriend you don't want to make her like rewind to her 10 year old self. Right. No. And <laughs> for you know, lots of reasons, but, yes. for lots of reasons. Right. But if you're going to say, she reminds you of a, of a famous actress who is renowned for her beauty and being sexy and a sex symbol, picking the one that you know, that through the eyes of the boys and men who mean the most to you in your life, you know, that they see Bridget Bardot that way. And that Pete sees her like Bridget Bardot, that's like, all right, nice recovery. You know, yeah. you almost fell on your face there, Pete, but nice recovery. And then, of course, she's able to put it into the like, is this the information you want? Let's share some information yeah. now. And it gets brought mm -hmm. back to the prisoner and they get their minds out of the high school days and back to where both he and she wanted to be. And then, much like a spy in the prisoner, she misleads him. She tells him. This was beautiful. This is great, which I think she truly means. But then she also says, yeah, you can take me to my train tomorrow. Pick me up at my dorm. And he wakes up from a sleep, much like Patrick McGowan wakes up from a sleep and is confused 
and realizes he's been misled in some way and that he knows right away something's gone wrong. And when he calls the dorm, she's already left and, you know, leaves a note saying, hey, it's better if we don't see each other again. Let's just remember what happened. Yeah, let's end on a high note. Yeah. I always felt that uh, Patrick McGowan's character in The Prisoner, um, it didn't make sense to me that he fell for that trick. He's supposed to be this awesome spy. And right. then like the the dumbest thing in the world is like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to throw this tantrum and go straight to where I live, where <laughs> everyone knows. And then I'm going to get uh, knocked out by sleeping gas and get captured. Yeah. Like maybe have your, maybe have your go bag in the car so that as soon as you give the resignation, you just take off as opposed to like, now I have to go back yeah. home and pack. Right. I mean, it looked like all he was doing was packing a single suitcase. He could have yeah. done that first. He could have had it. Yeah. And it's also maybe not the smartest move as a spy to drive around the most conspicuous car in London. <laughs> what, the Lotus doesn't stand out? <laughs> no one will notice me driving this. Uh, join Jay and I for our prisoner podcast coming soon to a <laughs> iTunes location near you. All right. Well, the other sort of epigram for this section is we couldn't stop laughing. And we saw this in the last section with the Goldwater sticker when both Pete and Carol can't stop laughing as he scrapes it off and throws away the last bastion of his conservative youth and dives headlong into liberalism. Um, but there's a lot of laughing in this section. And unlike with the Goldwater si sticker where that laughter sort of signified happiness and you know, it was the two of them falling in love and bonding over something and, you know, being positive change, positive change. Exactly. The laughing that happens in this section is the exact opposite. It's all about bullying and the us versus them. And we're picking on somebody else. So where it comes up most is when they're watching Stokely Jones, they're playing hearts. Um, Pete's about to shoot the moon in hearts and, and, and screw over, uh, Ronnie Malenfant. Yeah, he's about to screw over Ronnie Maliphant uh, by, by shooting the moon and taking all the tricks. And Stokely Jones comes stumbling out and he's going to slip and fall. And they all start laughing and cannot stop laughing. And at some point, Pete realized what he's, what he's doing is wrong and not funny. And he looks over at Skip, who seems to have come to the exact same re realization that we shouldn't be laughing at this. This is wrong. And then that makes him start breaking out laughing even more. And the one guy pisses his pants, he's laughing so hard, and it, they just can't stop. And it takes a much different turn here. And, you know, again, it's tied back a little bit to the Lord of the Flies thing where, you know, they're in this manic hearts game that sort of sets them on edge. But then this last piece is somebody outside, somebody different, is doing something that is funny to them, even though it shouldn't be. It's just misfortune. And they mm -hmm. are acting like bullies, even though Stokely isn't aware of it at the time. You know, they're in a dorm they're looking out the window he's not aware that they're laughing at him he's just living his life and uh but it is bullying in some way yeah and it was nice that at least uh pete and skip like both realized that they were doing something that was awful um at least skip when challenged by the nurse at the infirmary about their inappropriate behavior he seemed to be the only one with the emotional intelligence and the fortitude to answer her honestly and acknowledge that this is basically schadenfreude. Like they were laughing at the misfortune of, of Stokely Jones. And like, it doesn't matter that they couldn't control their laughter. It still was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so nobody else could like meet 
the eye of the doctor or the nurse. Only Skip could do that. Only Skip had that emotional intelligence to just say, yeah, we're, we're just being terrible people right now. Yeah. I can only apologize for it because there is, you know, there's nothing else to say. Yes. And Skip tries to remedy that as best he can. So it seems like it's immediately after that that they realize Stokely's in serious trouble. Yeah. Not only physically from the, you know, he's ill, but he's probably going to get kicked out of school because of what he did graffiti wise. And I think that's when Skip comes up with his plan. So what's the change that happens here that not only is Skip and you get again, you get the sense that Skip and Pete realize what they are doing was wrong and they want to do what's right for Stokely. But how does Skip get, what is it, 18 other kids to buy in and be like, yeah, we'll we'll stand up and protect them as well? It's raw charisma, I guess. Like, <laughs> or, or, I mean, you, you called it his Spartacus moment, and I think that's a pretty accurate way to describe it. But he had a lot of things going in his favor. Everybody in that dorm liked Skip. He's uh, described as being a good-looking guy, um, easy to get along with, plus... What he was asking them to do was to pull one over on the man, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's, you know, subvert the authority of the school. Let's subvert the ability of the administrators to, to basically go against Stokely. And add in to all of that the added spice of, we need to protect our own. Yeah. Even though Stokely never joined them in the hearts games, even though he was always judgmental and dismissive, he still lived in the dorm with them. He was one of us. Right. And they, and, and I think it, it wouldn't have been a hard sell for Skip to appeal to that, just at that level. Like, hey guys, we need, to, we need to protect our own here. You know, he's one of us. And if we don't help him out here, he won't be one of us anymore. And it'll, and it'll be the them that yep. takes him away. And we talked about this in Low Men, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's that point when Bobby is headed down there, and he runs into those that gang of youths, and they start yeah. pick, they start picking on him, and then the one guy who recognizes him is like, "Hey, no, 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 man, he's with me. He's cool. He's one of right. us." And then then they're together. Same sort of idea, right? And I wonder, and maybe this is again drawing a little bit too much, but I wonder how much of this is tied into the Vietnam aspect where again when the boys are playing hearts they sort they maybe they represent a larger stronger power picking on somebody weaker than them but you know again when they're together they they want to fight against the even stronger you know there's always that underdog piece right so mm-hmm. um you could pick on people but when then some, when there's somebody else picking on you you fight back in some way yeah and even Ronnie Malenfant was who's like always described as being the most abrasive and obnoxious of people in the moment when they needed to hustle and help Stokely Jones out of the water and off the ground he seemed to really shine yeah. like, like he he took a leadership role instinctively he barked out orders to the other other guys he took charge in a way that none of the others did um or at least not many of them did and Pete noticed that he didn't make a lot of it, but he noticed it. Yep. And aside from the fact that Skip personally picked up Stokely by himself to carry him the last few yards into the infirmary bed because they, as a group, they couldn't all fit through the door. Um, it seemed like Ronnie was maybe like the the most positive force in the whole mass of of young men trying to help 
Stokely. Yep. Um, so there is something to him besides hit being an asshole hearts player, right? <laughs> but because we only know him through the experience of playing the game, all we know is that he's an asshole. Right. But I guess there's a little bit more to him than that. Yeah, King has done a pretty good job of fleshing out some of these major characters. Um, and I wonder how much of this is him drawing on his own experience in college and pulling from people he knew and just sort of that's why he has an ability to describe them so well. I mean, not that King doesn't have that ability anyways, mm -hmm. but somebody like Ronnie does seem to be multifaceted. Somebody like Skip seems to be multifaceted. And even in this short story, you see different elements of these people that make them seem more realistic. So, Yeah, even the, the first guy who left school, like basically just quit while he was ahead. Yeah. Like uh, we, we got a, a real insight into his personality and his motivations and his fears. Uh, in a way that he was barely a named character before that. And right. suddenly I, uh, you know, King has me actually caring about what's going to happen to him in a way that is defeatist and, and, and pretty negative. Like we, we just know that he's going to end up in Vietnam within months and, or, or, or however long it takes to get drafted and then end up in Vietnam, but it's going to be soon. Yeah. Um, he just accepted the fact that, college wasn't going to work out for him right and there's one thing that i wanted to just kind of quickly tie to or, or call out is that the moment when skip carries stokely jones has a very strong echo to when bobby carried carol mm. when bobby carried carol the big deal was carol was somebody who was in distress and she needed help and she needed to be moved and the only person who was there to do it was someone who was physically not capable of easily doing that that carol was heavier than bobby and taller than bobby and injured to boot so she couldn't even help right and bobby carried her and ran up a hill in the the heat of the summer and all that stuff so it was a, an amazing thing carol remembers it as the best thing anybody has ever done for her and here it's not quite as big of a deal but there's a definite echo here and stokely acknowledges it to skip he said you carried me you didn't drop me. Yep. So I kind of feel like I owe you. So we're now in our second story in this book. And this event of a character carrying another character has happened a second time. So I kind of feel like maybe there's a pattern going on here or maybe it's a coincidence. Yeah, we'll see. So I think that that's a fantastic point And I didn't notice it until you and I were talking about it. And it's something I'm definitely going to look for. And I thought it was a good connection. It's not quite a Dark Tower thinny, Ooh. but it's getting close. So let's talk about our Dark Tower thinnies. So just to build on that, this story, unlike the previous one, is not directly connected to the Dark Tower. Right. That one is definitely Dark Tower adjacent, and there are explicit references to the Dark Tower series. This one has some more obscure ones. But it does have, as you just pointed out with your example, echoes of low men in yellow coats. And if we're going to talk about echoes to low men in yellow coats, that's close enough to being a Dark Tower thinny to me. So just to build on that, the other thing that happened in low men in yellow coats that echoes here is there's letters sent at the end of the story. Yeah. In the previous story, Carol forwards something from Ted that gets to Bobby. And that happens in the last few pages and Bobby opens it up and it's the roses. In this one, our narrator, Pete, 
gets a letter from Carol that sort of explains what's going on and, and her thoughts about that. So I thought that that was, if not quite a thinny, a, a nice little echo between these two stories. Absolutely. One, I think, more explicit Dark Tower thinny is that uh, Pete's father, we learn, was severely injured in a work accident. And due to that injury, he was in a coma for 19 days. 19, 19, you say? 19, I do. Interesting. So I will admit that I did not catch that, but Pete's father showing up and his characterization sort of took me off guard. It was like I was entering a whole nother story and here's a whole nother character that doesn't seem directly impacted with the rest of the story. But, you know, we get a lot of detail on what happened to Pete's father, how he acts now, what a different person he is. And he's silent for most of the time. He doesn't talk much anymore. But when he does, he has really good insight. When Pete breaks up with his high school girlfriend, he sort of nails mm-hmm. it on the nose and like, oh, yeah, Anne-Marie, yeah, I never I never much liked her. And you can't trust any of those Susie girls anyway, so you're, mm-hmm. you're better off without yeah. her. You're, you're well shut of her. Yes. <laughs> I, I could just imagine him doing it in his, like, you know, thick rural Maine accent. And, uh, uh, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yes. And, and also, Pete is, like, the only character in... Any of these stories so far in, in Hearts in Atlantis, and I think, hell, most of the Dark Tower that actually has a father who's a good role model mm. or has a father at all, right? Like, yeah. you know, how many, how many of our characters have uh, fathers who left or fathers who died or fathers who are pieces of crap, right? Jake's dad's a jerk. Yeah, a total jerk. Yeah. You know, so here we have a... a a character who is he's the main character of the story and he has a father and his father is he was physically injured but he's still a good person and he's still a good father and he's still a a a source of comfort and understanding to his son and that's something that we don't see much of in our journey to the dark tower no that is true we get a mention of the soap opera dark shadows a vampire soap opera King actually has he spells out exactly what Dark Shadows is if, if you're not familiar with it. And really, Dark Shadows is not that dissimilar to Salem's Lot. Uh, King is called Salem's Lot, Peyton Place, but with vampires, where, you know, he's talking basically a soap opera except with vampires. And that's exactly what Dark Shadows was. Although, if you spent any time watching the original Dark Shadows, like my wife and I did when we were in grad school, you realize that Dark Shadows is sort of batshit crazy and doesn't make a lot of sense. and it really goes more, <laughs> it really ends up going very soap opera-y. So it leans more on soap opera than on the vampire stuff? Well, it's got a lot of supernatural stuff and it's got the vampire stuff in, but at some point you're just like, man, this is really soapy. <laughs> Another Dark Tower thinny is that Pete expressly states that he is writing this story 33 years since it, the events in the story took place. And we know that the story takes place in 1966. So 33 years later means he's writing it in 1999, which, as I recall, was a pretty bad year for King and also a significant year and number in the Dark Tower. That is absolutely correct. And uh, a final Dark Tower thingy that I had was uh, all the connections to Odetta slash Detta slash Susanna. And um, one of them is that when the boys are trying to help Stoke out and lift him off the ground and out of the water, he fights back. He makes it nearly impossible for the boys to help him. Mm. And that reminded me a lot of Detta Walker on the beach in book two. It was hard enough to push her wheelchair 
through the sand and the gravel and the broken earth and the roots and everything like that. On top of that, she was throwing herself out of the chair, knocking the chair over, turning the brakes on, you know, like everything she could do to make it harder to help her. Yep. Um, I don't think Stokely was being consciously that mischievous and evil and combative, but he was definitely um, making it harder for others to help him. That is true. And the other thing is the protests. Odetta shared a lot of the same experiences during the civil rights protests that she participated in that all of the Vietnam protesters went through. So all the things that we learn about that Pete lived through, there are echoes of that back to Odetta's civil rights protest experiences. Of course, they were protesting very different things, and they were very different people and had different motivations. But the act of protesting against the government, the act of trying to change things for the better, still met with almost the identical form of resistance and um, and similar treatments, being jailed for your protest, being beaten up by the cops, things like that. So I, I saw a lot there. And, and those two things did not happen too far apart in time. No. So the, the, the mechanisms of the government and um, the police and authority hadn't really evolved much uh, between the time period when Odetta was protesting and the time period that Pete was protesting. Unlike now, like if people you know, wear pink pussy hats and protest the current presidential administration, it's a little bit different scene. Yeah. So thinking about the time period uh, and the near overlap there, um, uh, there's a lot in common. So I, I'd count that as a thinny as well. Yeah, I think so. Definite echoes between this story and, and the last story and the Dark Tower. You know, maybe you and I are well versed in looking for this stuff now, but they're definitely there. Yep. Well, as always, we'll get to the fun stuff now. Yes. Let us partake in the stuff that is fun. <laughs> Let us. <laughs> I'll start us off. Uh, one of the things I liked here was um, there's a lot of great writing again and wonderful line about laughter. You can't deny laughter. When it comes, it plops down in your favorite chair and stays as long as it wants. <laughs> just like the imagery of like the uninvited guests and, yes. and not only just being uninvited, but sitting in the place where you want to be. Right. So it's displaces you from your favorite chair on top of everything else. Uh, King is able to capture little details that really add to the scene. And at the same time, sort of draw on this nostalgia. And when he talks about uh, Pete and Carol having sex for the first time and they're making out, um, he notes that Carol's bra has been thrown on the, the seat of the car and one of the straps is laying there. And he says, bra technology in those days hadn't taken that next great leap forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it was a much thicker strap than what is done nowadays. So another good line, but filled with detail. Absolutely. I also like this line when Pete and Carol are talking and Carol says to him, maybe you love me and maybe you don't. I'd never try to talk anyone out of loving me. I can tell you that much because there's never enough loving to go around. And that seems like a really good hippie thing to say. Uh, couple, this is a couple years before the summer of love, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it's one of those sentiments that it could sound really cheesy. Like if I read it, it sounds pretty cheesy. But when I was reading it and it came out of Carol's mouth, I'm like, wow, this is pretty profound and significant. 
Yeah, I don't think it sounds cheesy, and and I don't think it. You need to be a hippie to to <laughs> agree with that sentiment. It's basically like, why would anybody not want to be loved, even if you don't necessarily feel that that emotion back to that very same person? It doesn't hurt you for them to love you. Uh, this is something that maybe it's only funny to me because I'm a big Simpsons fan. But when we learn about Carol's future exploits and ultimately um, manslaughter in her protest explosion and and accidental murder of some students, and the newspaper called her Red Carol Gerber, it just <laughs> made me think of Homer's mom. And I just always get a kick out of that. That's that's one of those Simpsons episodes that always kind of brings a tear to my eye because it's very sentimental and uh to, to think that homer's mom is basically a version of carol gerber or vice versa is uh <laughs> yeah. entertaining to me does that make abe simpson pete in this story uh... <laughs> Let's no no there. he's sully john oh yeah he's, that makes a lot more sense because he goes he's off the to soldier war, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's a soldier who goes off to war and has the contiki. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So Carol and Pete in sharing their information, Carol says, I want information. Are you a virgin? And Pete's not gonna lie to Carol and, and admits, yes, he is. And she says, mm-hmm. you know, I've I've done it twice with Sully John, and it wasn't wasn't that great, but let's make the most of this. And Pete, sitting with a woman who reminds him of Bridget Bardot. And who's very, very worked up by the situation and is super excited to, to finally be losing his virginity, makes it through four full songs at a commercial break on the radio. <laughs> I was very impressed by Pete. Let me just say that. Well, that's why this is fiction and not a documentary, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Stephen King makes those writer's types just the most magnificent sexy beasts there are. Mm. So the last thing I noticed was, um, Pete remembers Anne-Marie Susie, his high school girlfriend, and says she married an insurance agent. They had three kids and they're still married. I guess that's good, isn't it? Even if it isn't, you have to admit, it's pretty goddamn American. Like, yeah, that's that's pretty true. Like, I don't know if it's good or not, but it is pretty goddamn American. Yeah, you and I both called out that same line. To me, there's there's almost an undercurrent of criticism that expands out right i i think pete sort of sees this quintessential life quintessential american life as he puts it like as something that is maybe not necessarily aspirational like it's not a bad thing but it's not something to necessarily like objectively celebrate so maybe part of his the time that he became an adult during the the protests of the war and the the experiences that he had at that age had a permanent effect on him, that he's always kind of been a little bit against the man, a little bit against the society at large. Like it, there's something not quite right there, or there's something that there's definitely something that could be improved upon. And and by seeing how this young woman who he dated in high school kind of just fell right in line with the the cookie cutter Norman Rockwell American family, it's like, all right, well, she didn't do anything bad, but she didn't do anything noteworthy either. Right. And what's interesting, we don't know what Pete's life is like now. Like, he doesn't give us really much insight into that. I think he says he's married at some point, but that's all. But that's about it. But we don't get a sense of sort of everything. We know he becomes a writer of some sort. Um, you know, he and Skip, 
just to circle around to what we said at the beginning, sort of critique Nate for falling into the same life as Anne-Marie Susie, right? He's married mm-hmm. and has kids and, you know, get, gets his picture taken with a Christmas tree and, and, and leads his life. Um, and he's, as a college student, he's worried about Skip, right? He says, oh, Skip's going to become a teacher because that's all his parents can think of. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happens. Skips becomes a fairly renowned ar- artist. Yeah. Some critics criticize him for being sort of the flavor du jour. But in fact, he has a point of view and his art has an impact. And it affects Pete when he looks at it and sees the art and knows what it means. So it seems like he and Skip have taken that jump, right? That they've gone beyond what Nate and Anne-Marie Susie have done. And, you know, maybe that's not pretty goddamn American, but it's something. And it's mm-hmm. probably good. At least from Pete's point of view, it's better than what Anne-Marie and Nate have done. And that it's probably safe to say that's King's point of view. We've talked about in the past how King celebrates and values the creation of art very, very highly. And by making his two um, most aspirational characters, one an author and another a, a, an artist, like a painter and sculptor, he's basically saying to us that this is what I aspire to be. This is what I aspired to be when I was in college. I have achieved this to a great level of yep. success myself. Um, but I think it's something that we should all aspire to, to any degree, even if it's just something that's a weekend hobby or or what have you. Make art. Or a Thursday night creating a podcast type of thing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, this, this counts, right? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, just not to put too fine a point on it, but Pete is worried that Skip is going to become a teacher and that's all he's going to aspire to, but he, in fact, becomes an artist. Don't forget that before King became a famous writer, he was a teacher. Yep. Yep. So overall, this ends our discussion of Hearts in Atlantis. Um, again, not as dramatic, maybe, as Low Men in Yellow Coats, but still a good read. Um, interesting. Not a lot of direct connections that we think, but again, a, a really good story. Absolutely. It's a great story. So that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. We just couldn't stop laughing. Links nope. to <laughs> <laughs> Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Blind Willie, Bound in Hearts in Atlantis. We'll be reading the entire story. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Insert clip here. Insert clip here. You are number two.